No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, Coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I hope my show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So you should feel free to call in if you have questions at 888-628-6008. Tonight, I have a very special guest, Janetta Rose Barris. Uh, Janetta is a poet, a fiction writer, a performing artist, a community organizer. As we like to say, she's got it all going on, and we're just so excited to have her on the show tonight. Uh, Thanks for being with us, Janetta. Thank you so much, Senator Brown, for having me. Yeah, you know, the first thing, before I really get into the meat of the discussion, I saw something on your bio that I found really uh, interesting. I just thought we could talk about it for a second, that you have a group that works to inspire and empower empower fatherless girls and women. Tell me a little bit about that, because I find that very, very interesting. I'm the father of two daughters, and I believe that there's there's not enough you can do to empower young women. So tell me what you're doing. Well, um, I uh, am a fatherless daughter. I um, didn't get to meet my father until I was in my late 30s, um, my biological father, that is. And um, But all along, as I was growing up, I had so many issues, behavioral issues, emotional issues. And I never put it all together until uh, there was a movement afoot um, that was organized by Wade Horn and a number of other guys, mainly white guys, who were talking about the importance of fathers, but the importance of fathers as it related to their sons. And I happened to be covering uh, their conference one year and asked, well, if fathers are important to sons, shouldn't they also be important to daughters? And maybe even more important. And so I went on a little bit of an excursion and research about it and really learned uh, the importance and value of fathers in the development of their daughters. Um, and so I eventually ended up writing a book, Whatever Happened to Daddy's Little Girl, The Impact of Fatherlessness on Black Women, telling my story and the story of a number of other women who had grown up uh, without their fathers. 
after that book was published and I went on national tour, I actually decided to create an organization that would give voice to uh, young girls and women who had grown up without their fathers and to educate the public about the important role of fathers in the lives of their daughters. Fathers help to their daughters to navigate the the um the social uh the social and and professional world actually uh they teach their daughters how to uh develop an internal locus rather than an external locus and um and they, obviously they serve as the model for their daughters uh in uh in romantic circumstances that's so important i think that and we'll move on. I think first of all, God bless you for doing it and for writing the book. And I hope people will will get it and read it. Um, you can tell us where we can get it. Um, but I always felt that I grew up without a father in my home. Basically, uh, my father abandoned our family, and I was raised by my mom until I was fifteen, and then she died. But uh, I always felt. That the I have two girls, and I always felt that the first man that they needed to fall in love with was their dad. The first guy that they needed to look at and say, this is a good guy. This is a guy that wants to help me. This is a guy who, who stands for certain things and respects me and uh, empowers me. Because I think we, the way we raise women in our society – there's so many of them that have low self-esteem that it, it, it amazes me. And I think in part it's because of that. It's because of the, 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 the lack of um, uh, d good male role models as they grow up. Well, you know? and the thing is, is that until recently, over 50% of all marriages, at least 50% of all marriages yes. in America were failing. So that meant yes. many children were without uh, their fathers in most cases because the courts often gave custody of children to their to their mothers. Um, some right. of that is obviously changing now, and you do have in some instances mothers leaving the children to the fathers. Uh, so um, we have a little bit of a of a, a a change in that dynamic, but uh, in the communities of color at least 60% of those families are headed by females. And many yeah. of those females uh, grew up without their father. So you have uh, multi-generational father absence, which means you have multi-generational trauma. And that trauma sometimes can be passed on to the children. Well, since we're on the subject of trauma, Let's talk about the trauma. I agree with you 100%. The trauma in D.C. I just read an article that you wrote where your granddaughter asked you many questions about the recent murders that have gone on, or the recent shootings. They haven't, they haven't actually been murders. There were two kids uh, getting off a metro bus, 
there was, uh, of course, we have a 14-year-old who shot a, an NFL football player. We have uh, we have this 13-year-old kid who 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 was. It, we don't know what happened to him. If he was shot by a vigilante and and killed or, or what, he was supposedly breaking into cars, but he was out on the street at four o'clock in the morning. And 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 your granddaughter's worried about this. And 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 you said in the article that she asked you questions like you're responsible for this. And I started to think to myself, aren't we all responsible for this? Isn't did shouldn't this be our our, you know, our main priority is to keep children safe. I mean, if we if we can't keep them safe, I mean, that's about as basic as it gets, is it well, not? I think that is. I, I certainly agree with you. I think that generally the society and the government, and, and but mostly, but especially the parents have a responsibility mm-hmm. to their children. Uh, whether you are in a family where um, there is no father or there is no mother, um, that the parent that is there, the custodial parent, has a responsibility to keep that child or keep those children safe. And I don't. I, I think a lot of that is part of the problem uh, that we have parents who aren't doing their jobs, but we also have a society that has. I think embrace a certain level of lawlessness, uh, you know, under the guise of, I guess, liberalism or uh, support. I'm not sure uh, what that, uh, how we got there, but I do have a lot of concerns about what's happening to children in Washington D.C. and generally in this country. Um, and I think part of it, uh, more recently, uh, we can say that some of this has to do with the trauma of the pandemic. Uh, you know, when when the pandemic, when we first, when the pandemic first arrived here in America and in Washington, D.C., I asked the head of the D.C. Department of Behavioral Health whether the, the beginning rise of crime that we were seeing was as a result or was connected in any way to the pandemic. And she said that there hadn't been any causal research to, no research to look at whether there's a cause and effect relationship here. I was saying, well, I think you ought to do that because you've got people fully traumatized. You know, I mean, people are dying, just dying uh, before our very eyes, our friends, our family. And uh, during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, uh, people were caught in their homes uh, and with no place to go. I know my own granddaughter uh, was very troubled by uh, not being able to get out of the house. Yeah. Well, they're very so high school kids, middle school kids. My wife's a high school librarian. Uh, their social life is is so important to them, not only to them, but to their development. But since we're talking about this and responsibility, uh, one of the main um, controversies right now that we see in the District of Columbia is between the mayor and the city council over the overhaul of the D.C. criminal code. Now, the mayor... Object. This is an old code 
that's been uh, many years in the making uh, uh, to be reformed. But the thing that that seems to be troubling to the mayor and also troubling to me, to tell you the truth, is the reduction of mandatory sentencing for gun violations. Um, She's vetoed the bill. The council has overrode that veto with only one dissenting member. Uh, uh, So uh, what do you think about that? Do you think that uh, I can tell you that I feel that reducing mandatory sentencing for gun violations, even though it's not invoked very often, sends the wrong signal. Do you think it sends the wrong signal? Absolutely. Uh, I agree with the mayor on this. I I think first I want to say that I think it's commendable that um, advocates and lawyers, defense lawyers mainly, and law enforcement uh, got together to try to make sense of the city's century-old, you know, criminal code. I think, you know, what was happening, we were adding uh, various uh, sentences onto the code without having any kind of real kind of global look at what it all meant and, and, and what it should mean. Uh, and how we should have, or what the criminal code should look like and contain. So, so there's a benefit for doing that. However, when you have the U.S. Attorney, the Chief Judge of the D.C. Superior Court, and the Mayor of the District of Columbia all saying the same thing, we've got a problem, and we've got a problem with at least three to four uh, sections of this work. Now, this is a massive piece of uh, legislation. Yeah. It's over 300 pages. There are all these various different different uh, definitions of what is and what isn't a criminal crime and, you know, what what the circumstances have to be in order for someone to be charged, who is responsible for the burden of proof, where is the burden of proof, all of that is in the code. So it's a, it's a pretty hefty piece of legislation. But um, these pieces that the mayor has uh, raised, the, the concerns that she's raised and in her veto letter, uh, she talked about what those concerns were, the re- reducing of sentences for illegally carrying a gun on our streets. Uh, she had some concerns about uh, people actually being able to uh, demand a jury trial for a misdemeanor, which could back up the courts. Uh, which will back up the courts because, of course, uh, people who commit crimes don't want to necessarily be held accountable. And if you're going to give them an out uh, where, you know, they can demand a trial and uh, and then we don't have enough judges on, on the bench, you know, we have these vacancies and all of this. Uh, so, so I think it was – I think she was right uh, to raise questions. She raised questions before, and all of them raised questions, actually, before the council unanimously passed this code, um, cause they, and, 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 but they ignored the, the concerns, uh, specifically Charles Allen, who was the chair of the Committee on Judiciary and the Public Safety, and uh, he was the one who ushered it through the council. Uh, and so, and so, 
then she vetoes it. Now, what they could have done, Senator Brown, they could have actually decided to amend the legislation. Yeah, absolutely. Even as they overrode her veto, they could have still amended the legislation. But they they didn't want to do that for politics. Well, it's all politics. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Unfortunately, my dealings with the councilman from from Ward 6 is that he tends to be sanctimonious, which I think is a very dangerous uh, a dangerous thing for a politician. But I think that's part of it, too. They don't want their, you know, what, what, the, what the city council has passed, let no man set asunder. You know, I think that that's part of it. And you're right. They, they, I, I think they should have amended it. And they certainly had the opportunity to. And, and you know, there, there are people, when it comes to a jury trial, you know, there are people like me that sit down in front of the United States Senate and protest who get arrested who want to have jury trials because we're trying to make an issue, we're trying to make a point of something. But you're right, it does really, she's right, it clogs up a judicial system, which is already screwed up. Because yes. we don't have control over it, right? Exactly. It's not. It's really not ours to control. You know, I was arrested in front of the Senate, and I was tried in traffic court. I had to listen to a. I had to listen to a, a video on drunk driving before my case came up because we don't. Oh my prosecute. God. That's yeah, unbelievable. really. It, unbelievable. And then, and then after the after the thing was over. The Capitol Police officers that arrested me came up and hugged me. And I said, is this, I said to them, is this usually how it goes with perps? And they said, no, it doesn't, it doesn't usually go this way. But anyway, yeah, we, we don't control our own legal system. So that's a, that's a problem. And how about the city council? Aren't we always pandering to, to like oh. the latest fad? I mean, it, it is, kills it is, me. It is. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I have to go up to Capitol Hill and fight for our rights. And then we've got people that are proffering legislation to let undocumented aliens vote. This is like this is like a give me for those conservative Republicans (laughs) on the Hill. You know, they just love that. They're like, oh, my God. You know, and then they stand there and they say, well, the reason for that is they pay taxes and they, they, they add to our community. Well, how do they pay taxes if they're not allowed to work? You know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's like it's like almost crazy. And, and, and to let 16-year-olds vote, I, I've raised a few 16-year-olds and I was afraid to let them use the car, let, <laughs> let, let alone vote. vote. So, exactly. uh, so I don't know. And it seems like we're always pandering to, you know, whatever the latest, greatest uh, idea is. We've either considered it, legislated it or, or you know, or, 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 or lobbying for it. And it, it just seems crazy to me. And I, I, think, I think I think the city I think the city should be applauded for its sense of humanity and yes. its desire to bring everyone under the tent. 
uh, but it's not it's the way it's their approach that uh that this and I think that's what you're talking about more than yes. anything it's the approach that they take and whether some of this is reasonable uh is it logical it doesn't come from sound thinking have they even thought past the the moment that they're approving the legislation of the potential long-term impact on some of the legislation. And even most important, I think, the, the passage of the legislation with the uh, with the uh, undocumented workers, or undoc- uh, these aren't even workers yet, they're people who have just arrived in the city. Right. Um, Mary Che, who was the outgoing Ward 3, well, she's now the retired Ward 3 council member, had said, well, you know, you want these people to be able to vote after being here for 30 days? Seriously? Can you make it a little longer at least? And, of course, her uh, appeal was ignored. Um, and, and so, yes, the Republicans will, uh, will be all over that. But even before the Republicans, Senator Brown, there are district residents who didn't have a chance to weigh in on this. This was passed by emergency legislation. Now, the council members will say, well, we've been discussing this for years. But you haven't had, uh, before the vote, there was no public hearing for district residents. And some of these public hearings that the council holds um, are often uh, in the middle of the day at hours where people can't attend. Uh, Lots of people can't attend. And so you're right. You end up having the same people coming uh, and small numbers of people with big voices. And um, and so the council panders to them because they're under the 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 illusion that these are people who represent the entire city. They do not. Well, and you know what? The council certainly hides behind emergency legislation. We talk about it as if, uh, you know, this is something that we have to do because the mean old Congress won't let us make our own laws without letting them sit up on Capitol Hill for 30 legislative days. So this is a, this is a, 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 an encumbrance under which we need to deal, but it's also become a a methodology for them, a modus operandi for getting, just as you say, getting those things that they want to get through, through without, without any kind of uh, uh, interference from the, from the electorate. Um, Exactly. Well, let me ask you how, what do you think of, you know, since I've been elected, Janetta, you've had, um, Kwame Brown, Harry Thomas, Michael Brown, Jim Graham, Vincent Orange, Jack Evans, a whole list of people either go to jail, not get reelected because they were in the middle of uh, some investigation into malfeasance by them. Um, did we have a corrupt government in the District of Columbia? Are we cor- Are we, we're not Corrupt, I, I don't think in the, in the traditional sense that we think of political corruption. But are we corrupt because we play it fast and loose? I think that obviously there has been corruption in the government. I expect that there will be corruption in the government. 
the nature of politics and government is that there often is corruption. Yeah. You can go back to the beginning of the whole country and know that there was corruption. So I'm not yeah. surprised that there there's corruption. I do think that we need to tighten our laws uh, for how we deal with corruption and deal with unethical behavior. We created an office uh, board of uh, the Board of Government Ethics and uh, Accountability, BEGA is uh, what people call it, and um, I don't see it aggressively um, holding uh, elected officials and even uh, government managers to account for their behaviors uh, that are uh, loosey-goosey or on the, on the fringe of being uh, uh, corrupt, uh, certainly at the very least unethical. We just went through something uh, where uh, a candidate, uh, Alyssa Silverman, who is, was uh, a, a very good council member for many people um, and got herself involved in uh, some behavior that a lot that was at least questionable. Uh, certainly the Board of Elections decided that the Office of Campaign Finance had made a mistake and that what she did was not uh, illegal, was not a violation of the city's campaign finance laws. Everybody else, many, many people in the city thought it was. Um, but it's that kind of behavior that is, that is fuzzy. And um, and that when you do what the Board of Elections did, which was to basically um, uh, repeal the decision of its own agency, uh, then you leave the door wide open for real corruption. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I've got to say that, first of all, I talked to the head of Beg Bega, and at the time... Uh, I, I was seeking an advisory opinion, and at the time he told me they only had one investigator to yes. to investigate me, to investigate 13 city council members, the mayor, the heads of all the agencies, all the ANC commissioners. They're even responsible for ANC commissioners, and they have one person to do this, and, they, and, and the person, I can't even remember his name, but... He said, "We really, it's really almost impossible for us to stay on top of it. And, and you know, when I say playing it fast and loose, you know, I think we've seen that over and over again with, like, Kwame Brown ordering two SUVs on the first day of work, even though he wasn't entitled, <laughs> right? And Jack Evans saying, hey, look, if you want to do business with the TC government, just call me on the phone and I'll set it yeah. up for you. I mean, you know, at times I look at the city council and I say they run themselves the way we used to run student government, you know, in high school. You, 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 yeah, you, you, you flirted with my girlfriend, so you're not going to be on the prom committee. You know, yeah. that, that's, yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, but, yeah, that, that, that really bothers me. And I asked, I, 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 do, is part of our problem – that my favorite councilman of all time, Marion Barry, uh, when he was mayor, set this system in motion by, you know, hiring a lot of people. And and uh, what do you think of that? I mean, look, 
Uh, Mary Barry was nicer to me than anybody that's ever been on the city council. I admired his great political skill and how people admired him. But I've got to be honest with you. Every time I drive through Anacostia, which I do all the time, I say to myself, this man was in power for 40 years and, and, and still look at the problems we have down here. Uh, what do you think about that? Was did, well, did Marion Barry set the culture? I wrote a oh, book did? about no, Marion Barry, the last of the black emperors in the uh, new age of black leadership. Uh, and um, and uh, I, I was one big critic of Marion Barry. I remain a critic yeah. of Marion Barry because, like you, I thought that he had um, that uh, he had the trust of the people. Yes, he he was certainly a very skilled uh, politician, oh very God. charismatic, and um, and yet he failed at so much. Uh, he at one point under his leadership, there were six six DC government agencies under court order or either in court receivership, and these were um, agencies that were crucial to uh, low-income, working-class people, the Department of, of the Public Housing uh, Department, uh, you had schools, you had the Mental Health Commission, uh, you name it, the, the, the D.C. Uh, Child and Family Services uh, Agency was under court order for 32 years, and the child welfare system in this in this city is still messed up, and children are still uh, not being protected, and some are being killed by their parents or their parent or their mother's paramour or father's paramour or some relative in their family. It's ridiculous what's happening yeah. in this city. It is. It's, it's horrible. And when you think, I sit on the board of directors of a nonprofit that, or, or of a foundation that puts several hundred thousand dollars a year into organization, nonprofit organizations in DC. And we take a long, hard look because we give, uh, we give grants of like $25,000. We don't give big really, really big grants. And we look at all these small organizations that are trying to struggle with these problems. And sometimes it just amazes me. It amazes me when I was elected, when I was first elected, 51% of the kids, 51% of the kids at Blue High School did not graduate on time. And yeah. I'm sorry, at Anacostia High School did not graduate on time. And I thought to myself, how can it be that on the first day of school, the principal could could assemble everybody and go, you're more likely not to graduate than you are to graduate? I mean, it, it, it's crazy. In a city which is the most educated city in the world, we have more per capita, more people with graduate degrees in the District of Columbia than any other city in the world. And yet we have these kids that fall through the cracks. And when we talk, about education reform and we talk about a 10-year plan or a 15-year plan, I think about all the kids who are going to fall through the cracks in that 10-year period and ne maybe never be able to get their footing again. So, you know, it, it really 
bothers me to state we still have a bad education system in the District of Columbia. My kids went to D.C. public schools from pre-K through high school, but they went to good schools in Ward 3 where the parents were engaged, exactly what you talked about earlier, where the parents were engaged. And we don't see this in Ward 7 and 8, and we don't see a lot of wraparound services. Well, what do you think we need to do? Say, uh, to, in, in all fairness, uh, I want to be fair in, in my criticism. Uh, some people will say that what we're dealing with in the District of Columbia, uh, when you opened your, uh, your show, you had Sweet Honey in the Rock talking about uh, no taxation and without representation. Yes. And um, that is kind of a, a slogan for what we're talking about in terms of racism and institutional racism. And so some people will blame uh, a lot of what we're talking about, you know, the state of affairs of child welfare is uh, comes from the level of discrimination that we've seen uh, on uh, black people and people of color in terms of uh, labor laws and, and what was happening with that. Um, you'll say they'll talk about economic uh, injustice and inequity. Uh, and of course, we know that that is true. Um, it is a, a racist, classist society. Um, and so there are, you know, these foundational things that um, where we find the root of many of these problems. However, I always say that we've been in charge, meaning people of color, black people especially, uh, have been in charge for 40 years in the city. Um, and even though you still have the... Uh, the the Congress, the federal government, uh, hovering over you and checking everything you're doing. There is there are some things that can be done better than we're doing it, even in that kind of an environment. I think about my own uh, coming from uh, Louisiana. I grew up in New Orleans, and you know, in a segregated society. And I think about what my grandfather, grandmother, my my mother had to deal with. And I can assure you that uh, their approach to it was a little bit different than the approach we're seeing now in this society, where we've seen. Uh, significant improvements for people of color. Well, first of all, let me say that the two greatest weeks of my life were spent in a backwater called Chalmette in right outside of New Orleans. Yeah, and I yeah. can't I can't say any more than that or I'll have to <laughs> I'll have to resign. But let me let me ask you about racism in America. We've seen lately First of all, we saw the thing with George Floyd, where America was horrified by, we actually watched a man get murdered on TV, right? This, this, we, we watched this, we watched this ruthless racist cop kill this man. And, and, you know, we had, we were outraged, morally outraged, for a short period of time. It seems like we keep on getting morally outraged about things like this and, and the mass shootings like in Buffalo mm -hmm. and South Carolina and, you know, and they're obviously all racially, those are racially motivated. Uh, and we've seen a new uptick in anti-Semitism 
and attacks on Asian people. Is this something new? Is this a new variation of racism, like, uh, you know, like viruses mutate? Is this a mutation of racism, or is this just that America pushed racism in the 1960s and 70s, pushed it under the carpet? And now it's coming back to harm. I think the difference difference here is, I don't think it's new. I think it's always been there under the cover, behind the scenes. Uh, That's why we had a civil rights movement. Uh, That's why we still have a very uh, civil rights movement uh, involving various communities in this country because it has never gone away. I don't expect it to go away. What is troubling for me, and I think what is troubling for most people, is that you had a federal government and in some instances state governments that actually um, inspire uh, racial behavior um, and and condone it and um, and defend it. Uh, we had somebody in the White House recently. Uh, thank God he's gone, uh, and hopefully they'll never. Be, uh, people like him will never be back in charge. But he certainly uh, he came into office um, spouting uh, racial uh, divisive language uh, and uh, advanced uh, some of that while he was in office with executive orders and policies and programs. And so I think that is what, you know, what has happened is that there has been, uh, until recently, uh, a kind of an environment uh, where this has been uh, sort of suggested that this is the American way. And to a certain extent, I guess maybe at one point it was the American way, but it but we have become a much more advanced society, I think, and so people are a little bit more sensitive to it, and especially after the George Floyd murder, uh, I think people became even more sensitive. So I think that there are people now who are fighting, uh, publicly fighting, uh, you know, against this. And um, corporations, individuals, various leaders, and so it's kind of hard, but it is out here, and it's always been out here. The question is, you know, how how do you respond as an individual, uh, and then how does your community respond? And what about uh, Donald Trump? What about him? What what about I went to a forum right after um, he was elected. And I had a woman stand up and say, as Democrats, we have nothing to apologize for. And all I could say to her was, of course we do. We need to apologize for this man getting elected. If we had done our job, would he have been able to get elected? So how much responsibility do liberals uh, uh, how, how much responsibility do should we take for the fact that, you know, it seems that it's okay to be stupid and racist all of a sudden, you know? How much of that is on us? I, I'll ask you specifically that the University of Southern California just recently passed a regulation that says that the School of Social Work 
can no longer use the term field work or refer to themselves as a field <laughs> because it's insulting to, you know, Mexicans who have picked fruit, black people who come from slavery. I mean, don't we look foolish when we, when we worry I, yeah, about I, things I, like I, that? I, I think that trivializes, that trivializes yeah. the whole experience. I mean, I can't even, I can't even, I just find that to be so ridiculous. I, I do. And I, I think that, you know, people think that they're being uh, sensitive. Uh, I think that they're being, uh, it is a form of pandering and, and it's an insult uh, to, to take it to that level. I think yeah. the problem that happened with, with uh, Trump, who I do not like speaking about, because I think that when, you know, the more air you give him, the more power yeah. he has. I, agree. I try not to give him too much air and too much attention, uh, uh, you know, because he is, he is probably one of the worst people that I've met in, in my lifetime. Um, and I've met a lot of bad people. Uh, but he, he just at his core is evil. Um, so, so the thing about what happened with Democrats, I think, what happens with people generally is that they they act on their emotions. I like this person. I don't like that person. And I hope, I hope, uh, I think in 2020 we saw that people now understand their civic responsibility goes beyond their pleasure. It can't be, you can't be voting based on how you like somebody, but you have to vote on whether this person can sustain and grow the democracy uh, for this country and, and introduce and uh, support policies that are going to advance the society in general. And I think that what we did uh, back in that election with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton was that people personalized it. They didn't like her, and so they didn't yeah. go out to vote. It wasn't that they voted against her. They just didn't vote. Yeah. No, that's true, and you have to be liked in politics, and it's very strange because I've often thought to myself, you know, what if I was if I had to hire these people and I got their resumes and I saw you know eight years in the White House, Secretary of State, United States Senator, and then I looked at Donald Trump and I said, reality TV guy, you know why would you know how did the two of them even compare? And that's exactly right. It's that people didn't like her for some reason. Yeah. They didn't. You know, on a, they didn't like her personality, or yeah. you know, or, or, or whatever. But but yeah, it's uh, an accomplished it's, woman, uh, and a woman who is as accomplished. accomplished as she is is a hard pill for some people to swallow. Yes, I think that's absolutely true, and and you know, and and I think. With the with the the minor exception that he got elected president, she was more accomplished than her husband in a lot of ways. Oh, uh, but 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 uh, uh, you know, yeah, you have to be liked, and it's a really strange phenomenon in politics. Do you think this is a personal opinion? You think that that you shouldn't be given uh, uh, him any more airtime? Uh, 
then it's absolutely necessary. And I agree. Should we leave them alone? Should we do we look stupid that every liberal in America came out and trashed him for keeping classified documents outside the White House and now we're backstepping and <laughs> and and right? I wanna tell you the most the most point the the most uh um important thing that I've heard said about this issue is uh, the uh, the woman that, that from Saturday Night Live who who um, was the um, host of The Daily Show and said, oh. yes, this is a national security uh, this is a national security problem when we found out that Joe Biden had secret classified documents next to his Corvette. Oh my God! Why should a man this age have access to a Corvette? That's your, that's the real problem here, right? Is that nobody his age should be allowed to drive a car that goes 140 miles an hour? Exactly, exactly. exactly. And, and you know, it, it really we just look foolish. And I see people that I have so much respect for on the Democratic side, uh, like Congressman Schiff, up there trying to defend. Joe Biden saying, oh, well, you know, he, he, he had him in a lock filing cabinet next to his car and, and he's cooperating and that's somehow different. Well, the American people, I don't think, parse it that far. You know, here in Washington, we, we like to cut everything up into little tiny pieces. But for the most part, I see people say, hey, he had the documents, you had the documents, give it, give it up. Should we leave Donald Trump alone? My opinion is that we should leave him alone that we should invoke the clause under the 14th Amendment that says if you're involved in an insurrection, you can never again run for public office, and we should leave it at that. Let's make sure the man never runs for anything again and leave him alone. He's never going to jail. He's never going to Well, I out. think he should go to jail. Listen, but I'm from I, – I, in, in, I have – I am. Uh, I tell people all the time. I uh, my grandmother was very conservative about law and order, and I would imagine a lot of black people are. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, with uh, law and order. Uh, you know, I think that's probably why there's so much support for the mayor around this uh, for her veto of the uh, of the uh, revised criminal code. Uh, is because there's, there are many people in this city who believe that when you commit a crime, you should be held accountable. If that means you go to jail, you go to jail. But when you commit a crime, you, go, you, you have to be held accountable. No one is above the law. And, and because Donald Trump was involved, he didn't just... I mean, he didn't just sit on the sidelines and people were acting on his behalf. He stirred the whole January 6th action. And uh, he was leading the insurrection. And so even if it was, you know, at the White House, which made it even worse. Uh, and so, no, I think he should go to jail. Now, will he go to jail for that? Probably not. Will he go to jail because he took um, classified documents and refused to turn them over to the National Archives and lied about them? Probably not. I don't know. He may never go to jail. But I think we should pursue him 
for the laws that he broke. And I also think he shouldn't go. uh, He should never, ever be allowed to run for office and to hold office, any kind of office. I don't even think he should be a sheriff, a local sheriff. No, you can't be anything. Well, maybe he shouldn't be a local sheriff, especially because of his hateful, uh, you know, and racist uh, ways. Uh, So, no, I, I, I do think... There's a problem. But here, here's the other thing, though, Senator Brown. It, it, th- this whole notion that, you know, classified documents could be fa- found near a Corvette or uh, a- and in somebody's, you know, resort, uh, these are problems. Like, why are, what are these classified documents? And how is it that it's so easy for you to just take them uh, out of the, out of the, there should be a system where that really tracks the way people are handling classified documents. Are you telling me that no one knew that there were more than now more than two dozen documents that yeah. left the White House when when uh, Joe Biden left? Uh, they didn't know that there were classified documents that left when um, when Donald Trump left. Who's keeping up with these classified documents? Well, you know, I think. I guess I think when I think of him, I think of what my grandmother used to say, a woman who only took her apron off uh, to go to church on Sunday. And that is that she had bigger fish to fry. She would always say that. You you would do a little thing, you know. She would say, you'd come to her with some minor complaint, and she would say, I have bigger fish to fry. But, uh, but yeah, I, I understand why people want to prosecute him. I just don't know what it, good it does for the, the country, and I wonder if it doesn't add to the narrative uh, of, 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 you know, that we're trying to persecute him somehow. You know, I've got to tell you that every black person that I knew, every friend I had, and I didn't have many that were for him, but on, on a rare occasion when... Uh, uh, a black person would tell me that they supported Donald Trump. I always said to them, do you understand he doesn't like black people? I mean, he doesn't. He's a racist. And, you know, till this day, I would love to go to Georgia and and walk up to everybody that voted for Marjorie Taylor Greene and say, what were you thinking? I mean, oh, my God. Really, we, you should be embarrassed that you voted for this person. And, well, I think and when you create an environment, the environment in which we are nationally, that is, the national environment, which I think trickles down, I guess, to the local level, is that some people are really afraid that white people are losing control. Oh, yeah. And Absolutely. and 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 it and and so they they are doing some of them are doing everything they can to try to hold on to the control. It's it it's a little late for that. The country has been changing over the last twenty or thirty years, maybe even before then. And so as black people and brown people and Asian people uh, began to become more, uh, become leaders in various industries and in this society, it is becoming more and more diverse. 
And well, and I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, and I find that most white people have a, uh, a hard time understanding how they benefited from white privilege. I was yes. lucky. I grew up as a kid, a young child in North New Jersey, and just a, a cesspool of a city. My parents moved me out of there when I was 12 years old. My father abandoned my family. My mother died. I was an orphan on my own who had to work to put myself through school and everything. But I lived in Montgomery County. There were lots of people that rushed in to help me, to, to support me. And, and I think to myself, if I lived in inner city D.C. or I lived in inner city Baltimore, because I used to go back to North to visit my grandmother, and I saw how the, I saw how people lived. I would have never made it, but I made it in Montgomery County because they allowed me to act out all over the place, and and people rushed in to help me. And so I I am such a beneficiary of white privilege, and I, I think, but I I don't think most people see that, and I think they do see it slipping away. You know, when we talk about the good old days. They weren't so good for a lot of people, right? No. They were only good for a handful of us, right? Yeah. So uh, it's certainly my well, my and it wasn't so good for for some of the white people either. Uh, well, that's but the, true. The, the, the white people don't realize didn't realize that uh, because the people that were in charge looked like them, and so they had the aspirations or the belief that they could move up the ladder. Some of them actually did, who right. certainly didn't deserve it. Uh, but, you know, uh, the point, though, I think is, if you don't set a standard in your society, it's like in your family. If you don't set a standard in your family, uh, you know, what is appropriate behavior? What is appropriate language? Uh, what is, uh, you know, how you should treat each other in that family and how you should treat your neighbors? All of that is critical to having a healthy society. And so you can't let people just commit crimes and not be held accountable, whether right. it's a carjacking, a robbery, uh, walking around with a gun and accidentally shooting uh, two children because you're trying to shoot somebody else for some petty beef, or you're trying to shoot somebody else because they're entering your drug territory, or you took some uh, classified documents, or you raped a woman, and swear to God, you didn't rape her. Uh, but instead, we hear you on uh, on you know on a, a broadcast talking about grabbing women. All of these right. are crimes that have to be, and right. people who commit them have to be held accountable. Well, and you're right about the standards your family sets because, you know, I am one of three children. My brother was president of a college. My sister was a senior partner in a law firm, and I dropped out of high school. And I went back and I got a master's degree. And people asked me, I got a GED, and I ultimately got a master's degree. And people said, well, how, what motivated you to do that? And I say often I would have never been acceptable to my family with a tenth grade education. If I found out a, if I found a way to make ten million dollars, my grandmother would have said to me, "Great, now you can go back to school and get an education." 
Because right. that's the way we were brought up, right? Those were the standards they set for us. Right. Well, Janetta Rose Barris, we're out of time. Is there anything you want to add? No, thank you very much for allowing me to have this chat with you this evening. It's been quite oh. informative, I think, and it's been a lot of fun. And and the honor is mine. I'm a big fan, and I encourage everybody to read what you write on the DC line because you you really you really are, are, are write some really great stuff to get right to the point, and uh, is always not only worth reading, but, but often very entertaining as well. Uh, we, we always leave our, uh, our show with a song, uh, usually uh, dedicated to our guests, but tonight I'm going to take a special privilege because a man that helped orchestrate my youth, David Crosby, passed away this week. So oh, yeah. we're going to play In the Year of the Rabbit, Happy Lunar New Year's to all my Chinese friends out there. It's the year of the rabbit, and we're supposed to be more introspective. So, uh, thank you, Janetta Rose Barris. We hope you'll come. I hope you'll come back again sometime. And uh, this song goes out uh, to you and everybody else in America in tribute to David Crosby. May he rest in peace. Here's one from the birds. Thanks, folks. See you next week. Thank you.